Hello, friend. Welcome back. As always, it is both a pleasure and an honor to have you with me for The Tully Show and another look back at a bunch of music that was brand new just about 40 years ago, as is becoming my habit. In addition to this show, I'm also recording a companion podcast, All the Leftovers, the stuff that didn't quite pass Tully Show muster. A lot of big-name artists making some of the least remarkable music of their career. Aretha Franklin, Donna Summer, to name two, plus what big-name artists recorded this curiosity. Find out for free exclusively at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. One more time, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live on tape from a plush state-of-the-art podcast bunker in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Glad to have you back with me for another look back at music that was brand new, almost 40 years ago. I'm settling into a pattern here, not intentionally, but it's undeniable at this point. One week I talk to a nonfiction author about a subject of great importance to all of our lives. And then the next week I talk about a bunch of Pointer Sisters records. Hello and welcome one and all. Uh, I To be clear up front, this is probably going to be a shorter than usual episode of a new music releases pod. July of 82 is not without its merits in musical output, but it's not the strongest month I've looked at. I for a second considered doubling up and combining it with the stuff from August of 82, but there's a lot, a lot, a lot of noteworthy releases there to which I did not want to give short shrift. So I figured, you know, we'll just have a mellow hang. We'll go through some not completely unremarkable records there's some total bangers in here and we'll have fun we'll see how long it goes and then uh, if you still care at the door at the end of this there's the companion pod for the rest of the new july 82 stuff over at patreon.com slash mike tully the only major i like looking at the major music news of this exact same time to put myself in the spirit of what was happening in the world and uh, this is the month that ozzy osbourne married Sharon Osbourne, which is an interesting thing to contemplate because Sharon, in my household, and you know this if you're on my Patreon, my son is absolutely Aussie obsessed at the moment. I'm getting very, very sick of listening to Aussie. He's like eight greatest hits on a loop in my car. And, um, you know, Sharon obviously has absorbed her a level of criticism over the years. I would say she probably has deserved a level of criticism over the years. But, uh, man, if you see Ozzy in performances from the early 80s, 
He's he's very puffy. He's very lifeless, and um, Ozzy has continued to. I mean, up until I, I, don't, I don't, I haven't spent any time with his new single, but even like that last last Black Sabbath album they made, maybe ten years ago, from as a not even a huge Black Sabbath fan, um, I I liked it personally, and. I don't know how much longer Ozzy was going to be a musical force on planet Earth. I don't know how much longer Ozzy was going to be a human being on planet Earth were it not for Sharon getting involved in his life. So um, whatever you might think of their relationship, whatever you might think of the fact that Ozzy is still on stage at like 135 years old, whatever you might think of Sharon, um, a lot of good music has, uh, has, has happened that might not have happened because of the holy matrimony of Sharon and Ozzy in July of 82, the same month that Dolly Parton starred in a film adaptation of a hit Broadway musical, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, with all due respect to Pretty Woman, probably the height of Hollywood's glorification and sugarcoating of the prostitution industry. And not only did you did she star in the film, you don't get Dolly Parton in a movie and not have her put some music on the soundtrack. So in addition to the stuff that they carried over from the Broadway musical, Dolly had two songs on the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas soundtrack. One of them is perhaps her signature song, the most noteworthy song she ever composed or sang. The other one is a duet with her co-star, Burt Reynolds. Guess which one we're starting with? Swing and sneaking around with you. Well, I like beer and rodeos, detective books and dominoes, football games and Cheerios. Cheerios? So sneaking around with you. Sneaking around with you. Man. Chewing gum, having a mustache, laying provocatively on an animal skin rug in front of a fireplace, hanging out with Dom DeLuise all the time, and singing what could Burt Reynolds not do. So that's one of the two Dolly songs on the Best Little Whorehouse in, in Texas soundtrack. The other is a song that she wrote and recorded upon parting with a business manager, I think in the early mid-70s. She had a big country hit with it. She re-recorded the song, re-released it for this movie soundtrack. It was a big hit for her all, for her all over again. Now, personally, I missed this one. I think it was more of a country hit than a mainstream hit. When I first heard this song, from Whitney Houston. I thought it was an original song that Whitney was the first person to perform. Of course, I could not have been more wrong in case you are uh, unacquainted or if you know it, let's get reacquainted with the second Dolly Parton version of I Will Always Love You. I would only be in your of the way and I will always love you will always isn't it so funny how a song like if you if you if you heard the Whitney version first like I did and I'm sure many other people did it doesn't strike you as having a country element to it at all and then you hear Dolly Parton sing it and you're like oh yeah that is a flat out straight ahead classic country song 
July of 82, at the other end of the musical spectrum, Judas Priest were up to their eighth studio album. This is, and, and they had not yet had a really big hit in America. I'm sure they're making money. I'm sure they were successful in the UK, but this is a phenomenon that largely disappeared from the music industry for decades. I think it's come back around now a little bit. The Pointer Sisters, who we will be talking about a little bit later in the show, also an example of this phenomenon. In the, in the good old days when the music biz was the music biz, some artists, hit artists, generated so much money hand over fist for their record label that the label could keep signing lots of other unprofitable acts and also keeping said unprofitable acts around for pretty much as long as they wanted to in the hope that someday they might put it all together and connect with a wider audience and... In the 80s and into the 90s, this totally went away. If bands got the big deal and they put out one record and it flopped, they'd be lucky to have a second album dumped, and that would be the last that we would hear of them. And it's an unanswerable question. How many of the bands who got signed to the big deal in the 80s, 90s, 2000s didn't hit right away, didn't have an MTV song or whatever, and broke up? How many of them? if they had just been given time um, would have eventually made some, some classic song that all songs that all of us would know and perhaps love. Well, Judas Priest was on their eighth studio album and they had recorded the album and they pretty much had it done. And one of these days I'm going to do a podcast. I, I don't know how many times I've seen this anecdote and it's, I find it really, really striking. This is the classic. The album was done. We were very happy with it. And like the last day of recording, one guy, one guy hits one note and another guy hits a tom drum and whoops, we just pooped out another one and that becomes the hit. Usually when you have a song that you know is one of the strongest songs on the album, that you know is going to be one of the singles, it's like track one, track two, track three. It's at least on the first side of the album. This is track eight. Out of a 10-track album, Judas Priest thought that they had written an album track, and instead they had written perhaps the signature hit of their entire career. So Judas Priest are on their eighth album. Meanwhile, Billy Idol is unveiling his first solo album. As you may know, Billy Idol had been a member of uh, a relative also ran British punk act around the same time as The Clash and The Sex Pistols and all that. Billy Idol is in Generation X, who were always, to my ears, a little bit more pop-leaning. Like a lot of punk music when it comes down to it. It sounded so radical and noisy and anarchic at the time but you know there's a reason why kids sing along to Ramon songs now you know so a lot of these bands at their heart were pretty straightforward uh, pop bands albeit very noisy ones but to me Generation X were even more pop than some of the uh, some of their cohorts I have no idea if I'm using that word correctly but let's go with it as a matter of fact one of his lead singles as a solo artist was just a re-recording of Dancing With Myself, which was a Generation X song. So the writing's on the wall. Punk is so yesterday. Everything is 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 going new wave. And Billy Idol is perhaps the best example of music making that transition, the punk stuff going 
going new wave, going mainstream, retaining some of the sneer. And he had a signature one while getting more into slick production and drum machines. And here's an interesting thing. Judas Priest are a metal band. That's what they always have been, right? Billy Idol is... You know, he had the trappings of a rock star, but he was always a pop star. I'm just curious, how much heavier was You've Got Another Thing Coming than the song that we're about to listen to right here? Because You've Got Another Thing Coming never got played on pop radio. That's a rock radio song. This song was a mainstream pop hit. I wonder how different they actually sound. Start again. I'm always a nice day for my wedding. With the masterful Steve Stevens on guitar, Billy Idol making way for another prominent early 80s solo rock singer named Billy. Billy Squire was in the prime of his commercial run. Now, the story, people just don't really talk about Billy Squire anymore. You don't really hear his songs come up even on the nostalgia stations or shows anymore. The story of Billy Squire, I feel like nowadays when I hear his name, is largely just the cautionary tale of the guy who he was known as a rocker, a man's man. And then he made one music video and somebody at the label was like, you know, everybody's dancing like idiots in their MTV videos. How about you stand in front of this mirror mirror, and you dance like an idiot, Billy? And he did it and they all laughed at him <laughs> and said he was gay. And that was the end of Billy Squire, which is so crazy to me because, as I've said, I think to Mark McGrath on this very show, when I when I heard that story, I thought they were talking about his song and music video, The Stroke, which I'll refresh your memory. Keep your contributions by your side. <laughs> nope, that one was just fine. I swear, if anybody on Earth played that song past 1986, 87, if it played anywhere at all, maybe it didn't, but if it played anywhere, it was probably in a gay bar. Can we all agree? But that was okay. Billy Idol was fine singing The Stroke with his denim bulge in the music video it was later when he uh danced with uh like a like a, a droopy uh debbie gibson tiffany style sweatshirt on with i think maybe one of the the, the neck hanging off of his shoulder on one side that he was done so but where we find him in july of 1982 he is still in his commercial prime and i don't think i well i definitely did not realize that billy squire was ever a made man quite to the extent that he clearly was Andy freaking Warhol did the cover for this album. How and when did Billy Squire and Andy Warhol meet? And more importantly, what did they talk about? How did they get along? I don't know. Andy Warhol had many muses over the years. Elvis, Marilyn Monroe, and Billy Squire. And on this album, Billy Squire had not one but two members of Queen make guest appearances. I forget uh, who uh, Roger Taylor, I think, was one, but Freddie Mercury was the other. 
A star-studded affair was Billy Squire's new album in July of 1982, and this was the single. The Go-Go's were also at the peak of their fame following up their breakthrough album, Beauty and the Beat was their second album. Uh, it's Oh yeah, and, and this is the title track. I know I owned a 45 vinyl record of this song right here, but it also, it, it released, it had a, a breakthrough uh, unprecedented single release. Not only was it released for um, people stuck in the past as a 45 single, this may well have been the first single ever released as a single. Remember those? The Go-Go's and a representative slice of their signature surf pop. Jackson Brown, I gather, is a pretty credible dude. I will admit that I know him more by reputation than I, than I really am familiar with his body of work, his discography. I, a lot of what I know about Jackson Brown, personally, I learned from that well-regarded Eagles miniseries that came out, I don't know, eight, ten years ago now. Jackson Brown was one of those dudes. So there's all the classic rock guys of the late 60s, in LA, you know, the doors and, and what have you. And then there was the second wave. I think the people who were inspired to move there by also the, the more folky leaning James Taylors, etc. And these guys set up shop and they get they got to work in a way that I really respect. I remember I think it was Glenn Fry in the Eagles documentary saying that, you know, he was serious about music. He thought he was serious. He'd moved here, he'd started a band, he was willing to do anything to make it, but he said he literally lived in an apartment on top of Jackson Brown's. And he heard Jackson Brown every single day sit down at his piano to write. And it's one thing to be super duper committed, but it's another thing and a far more powerful thing to be committed and disciplined. And Jackson Brown was like, yeah, I want to be a rock star, but it's also like my job. It's my profession. And when you have a profession, you take it seriously. You work at it in a concerted and consistent manner. And so Jackson Brown tried to write something every single day. And Glenn, Glenn Fry said he learned from that example, and it's part of the reason why he thinks he, and by extension, the Eagles were able to be so successful themselves. Jackson Brown is a serious dude that people with taste take seriously, and I wonder if it bums him out just a little bit that his last charting hit and the biggest hit of his career was a song that Jackson Brown, serious, credible dude, wrote and for and contributed to the soundtrack of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Be somebody's baby. 
mentioned the Pointer Sisters earlier by July of 82. They were up to their ninth studio album and they'd had some success. There's at least one song in the 70s. There might be two, but He's So Shy was a hit for them. I think there's another one. Anyway, this was the old record business. If people believed in you and somebody high enough up at the record label, you know, maintained faith in you. They would just keep giving you bites at the apple. And indeed, it finally did come together for the Pointer Sisters. They were massive in the 80s. And in some ways, maybe like the prototypical 80s act or prototypical 80s uh, pop act, just lightweight, fun. <laughs> you knew what you were getting. Never did like a song with a social a social message that I'm aware of anyway. In a lot of ways, I think the 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 sound of disco met a, a very sudden and dramatic demise, but the spirit of it carried on. And, and the spirit, I think, of the Pointer Sisters' big hits is very much the spirit of disco, which is just, let's have fun. And this is just mindless Friday night, Saturday night, get on the dance floor kind of stuff. And this is the song probably, well, I don't know. There's, they've got several songs that epitomize that attitude, Jump and Neutron Dance, but also this song as well, which they recorded this song for their July 82 album, and it was a modest hit. It was remixed and included on their next album, 84. That's when it became a global smash. But this is one of the signature Pointer Sisters songs. And as I mentioned before, I read and enjoyed the memoir from one of the three Pointer Sisters. It was far more entertaining than I expected it to be, and not so much for the other two, but for the one whose book I read, a big part of the reason why she was so excited, cocaine. Elsewhere on the pop charts, America had had a little run as a crossover folk act in the 70s. The only song I can name by them is A Horse With No Name, those guys, that sort of thing. But they briefly bubbled back up to the top of the charts with a, uh, they had a number eight hit with this song that sounds absolutely nothing like A Horse With No Name. But come to think of it, kind of sounds like Abracadabra by Steve Miller which I think we listened to last month here, Steve Miller, another 70s holdover, clinging on by his fingertips as the 80s got underway. Magic. I might have ever so slightly 
underestimated America. I can still hear the the 70s stink of mild credibility on that, right? That kind of had a little bit of a modest Steely Dan vibe. Can we agree? You know, it's always funny to me how we think of songs now compared to how they were thought of at the time that they were released. There's always songs that were big, big hits at the time that you'd never really hear anymore, like the song we just sampled. And then there's songs that you do hear fairly frequently nowadays that have come to be thought of as representative of the 80s that actually were relative flops at the time. Talk Talk in July of 82 released their debut album and it featured their self-titled song, the song they named, but they really thought Talk Talk had a really great ring to it. It was the name of the band. It was the name of their first big single, uh, even though it only made it up to 75 on the Billboard Top 100 way back then. Elvis Costello released his seventh studio album on July 2nd, 1982. And I don't know where you are on Elvis Costello. Personally, I would say that I like and respect Elvis Costello, but I don't personally love him as much as I feel like you're supposed to. And I can't really say why. I do know that this album is, like, I can name maybe 10 Elvis Costello songs and and I like I like a lot of them and I think he's grown on me more as the years have gone by but I don't have like a go-to Elvis Costello song I don't have a go-to Elvis Costello album I do know the title of this album Imperial Bedroom is if I know one album title from him this is the one that I know and this is the one that I have most often heard referred to as the Elvis Costello album perhaps the masterpiece and so I was a little surprised when I saw that it came out this month I click on it thinking oh I probably if I know 10 of his songs probably three of them are on the masterpiece right and no I actually didn't don't regularly listen to any of the songs that are on this album. Let me play you one of the most popular tracks from the album and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Okay, I take that back. Yeah, I, <laughs> second listen, I, I I totally know that song, and I bet you do too. I I like that. I I've always heard that Imperial Bedroom is this album everybody's supposed to know about and worship, and I've never gotten around listening to it. And as I said, I think it's because I always there's something about him that that I always found a little much. The nasal voice, I like it, but it's a little much. And the early singers singles, you know the the radio, radio kind of stuff. It's, uh, I think it's just a a little too in your face for me to really want to listen to repeatedly. That, the more subdued, more mature, more mellow seventh album stylings of Elvis Costello is something that I think 
I might be, maybe I'm finally old enough to appreciate Elvis Costello. I think that's pretty cool. And if that whole album is the masterpiece, then uh, I think I am planning to listen to Imperial Bedroom Top to Bottom. And folks, that's just about the all of the truly noteworthy stuff that I want to talk to you about this month. As I said, it's gonna it was gonna be a a quick pod, but I hope you have considered it worth your while. We will go from that has to be the most credible piece of music that was released in July of 82. We will go from that to one of the, if not the most least credible (laughs) song, album, artist who was operating at the peak of their game in July of 82, at least as a solo artist. I will remind you there's more where this came from if you want to hear what Aretha Franklin and uh, Donna Summer and Teddy Pendergrass and Kenny Rogers and a bunch of other people were also up to at this same time. Come find me, free pod, open to the public, patreon.com slash Mike Tully. But I would be remiss if I did not share this with you before I saw myself out the door. I was not, for some strange reason, able to find the entire album Tickle Your Fancy by Jermaine Jackson that came out in July of 80. Think about it. Oh, boy. I've always wondered what it's like to be Jermaine. You're so famous. You were in the Jackson 5. You're a made man. But, like, your brother is Michael Jackson. And I feel like some of the Jacksons are kind of like, yeah, that's cool. I mean, I'm pretty good at music. But look at Michael. He's amazing. I don't know anything about Jermaine, but I always felt like deep down inside he felt like he could and perhaps should be Michael Jackson. But around this time, Michael Jackson is, like, making Beat It and Billie Jean. And he's not even as big as he's going to be with later hits. Meanwhile, This is the title track of the album that Jermaine Jackson cooked up in July of 82. I will leave you with this. Thank you, as always, for being here. I look forward to seeing you soon. (laughs) 